With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Ladies and gentlemen, uh... can I please have your attention? Greetings, dear listeners. This is Jonah Goldberg, host of the Remnant Podcast, brought to you by the Dispatch and Dispatch Media. Um, gosh, where to begin? Um, no, seriously, where to begin? Because like, I, I don't know. Uh, I just so you have the full sense of the, my complete preparation for this, I have written down pipeline, Europe, fascism, immigration, rats. Um, this is the full extent of my notes for this morning. Um, I had a problematic start to the day and um, I feel like it's only well, it's only about nine o'clock and I already feel like I've wasted the day away. Um, but Family drama, dog drama can wait for another time. So, uh, uh, pipeline. So, I guess part of this is like I have some esprit de scale. Uh, that's the what the, the Frenchies say, for the French term for, um, I should have said, the jerk store called and they want more of you, right? It's this feeling of, I should have said this, I should have said that. Um, from a few things this week, uh, one of them was about the, conversation about the Nord Stream pipeline sabotage thing on the dispatch podcast yesterday. I just completely forgot to make the most important point about why it's almost surely Russia that, um, uh, sabotage Nord Stream. Um, the way it works is that Russia is contracted to provide X amount of natural gas to Europe. And if they had simply turned off the pipeline, uh, they would be on the hook for billions of dollars to pay um, Western European countries that they for to reimburse them for the contracted amount or whatever, or pay the penalties or or whatever. They would have to make good on the contract. And but if they can just say, you know, sort of like the vice principal in Breakfast Club, uh, you know. Um, or I should, I should say Judd Nelson to the vice principal, you know, screws fall, the world's an imperfect place, pipelines spontaneously um, explode um, in various places simultaneously. It's not our fault. They can claim as what, you know, in, in law world is called force majeure. They can say this, look, this wasn't um, our fault. This was an act of God. Um, and, um, and which, you know, with Putin has a certain sense of, um, veracity to it because he kind of considers himself God and um, that lets them off the hook for their contractual obligations. It's entirely possible. It's too clever by half, but as I, as I was saying on the dispatch podcast, the Russians really do enjoy simultaneously lying 
and letting you know that they're lying. But you know, it's a, it's a form. You know, it's 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 a form of old school gaslighting where um, they like the instability and the the what do you call it uh, the discord, the internal discord. Um, that is caused by giving enough ammo to combatants on two sides of an issue. Um, and so it's, they, they, they like the, they like giving anti, you know, it goes back to KGB stuff, you know, they like giving anti-communists just enough fuel to say that the Russians are lying, but also give pro-communists just enough fuel to say the Russians are telling the truth. Um, you know, and it's a weird form of, it, it, it manifests itself in a weird way um, as a more brazen form of lying. I mean, I, I talked on here a while back, I think, about you know the origins of the Molotov cocktail, which uh, the Russians tried to claim was invented by uh, um, Molotov uh, Bolsheviks in, in the Russian Revolution. It wasn't. It was actually invented by the Finns um, as part of their uh, part of the Winter War resistance to the Soviet invasion of Finland, and they were called Molotov cocktails because earlier uh, Molotov, who was the uh, foreign minister of the Soviet Union, member of the Molotov-Ribbentrop Pact, which is also called the Hitler-Stalin Pact, um, uh, Molotov said that the uh, illegal aerial bombing of, of, I guess, Helsinki, that these weren't bombs at all. These were... Um, care packages. These were, these were food baskets for hungry Finns. And the whole world knew it was a lie, except for the people who didn't want it to be a lie, who claimed it was the truth. And so the Finns kind of turned the tables and said, you know, these aren't uh, gas-filled, uh, homemade firebombs. They're Molotov cocktails. Um, but like, anyway, the point is, is that, you know, the, the, the KGB had this weird sort of gift for lying so brazenly um, because it considered the truth just another part of um, the informational battle space and that was utterly irrelevant to um, diplomacy or statecraft or media or academics. Um, and I think there's a long-standing legacy of that um, in Russia today. And there's a, you know, there's a long-standing legacy of useful idiots buying into this crap uh, from Russia as well. Um, I have to say in terms of, you know, like I, I think what's happening in, in Ukraine and to a certain extent in Russia is tragic. Um, uh, but certainly in Ukraine, it's tragic. It's horrible. You know, people are dying needless deaths every single day. Um, the Russians are committing just barbaric atrocities. Um, you know, shooting people in the back of the head. Um, with their hands tied behind their back and throwing them into pits, um, you know, shelling indiscriminately in population centers, killing, you know, kids and blowing up schools and all that kind of stuff. So I think it's all terrible, but I do have a certain amount of schadenfreude um, about watching the sort of pro Putin or anti anti Putin caucus in this country as, you know, for months they told us how, you know, Putin was superior to Western leaders, that Putin, that Russia was better than um, the United States because they didn't use pronouns and it was, they were nationalist and they cared about Mother Russia and the 
integral social order and you know they put you know national cohesion above um petty bourgeois democracy all of this nonsense that you heard from all the usual suspects on the from you know the the that whole greenwald tucker carlson uh sorobamari uh front um you know and not necessarily in those explicit words from those people but from that whole constituency um and now we're just watching these you know these videos and seeing these pictures of miles upon miles of cars of russians uh fleeing their own country rather than fight for this incredibly stupid war um a stupid war that every day is manifesting itself in its stupidity even more and yet you still find people who who think that we provoked it that we're really to blame for it that we're escalating somehow that you know justifies putin doing even worse things um and you know at some point just cut bait dudes uh you backed a bad horse you knew it when you were backing him um and all of the sort of you know rhetorical ledger domain that you use to sort of say look i'm not actually pro putin i'm just i'm asking important questions uh at this point just makes you look ridiculous um and uh, and I'm enjoying them looking ridiculous. I'm not going to lie; it's petty, but you know I, I need to have some small pleasures in life. Um, speaking of small pleasures, uh, let's talk about fascism for a second. So, not a fan of fascism. Just got to be clear about that. It's amazing how all, I remember once when my when I was on tour for my book tour for liberal fascism, I spoke at Emory, and. Like at this point, I had given my argument about the book and about fascism, about fascism is, fascism is bad. The left are hypocrites for always saying that fascism only lurks to their right. Um, yada, yada, yada. I can go through the whole song and dance if you want. But anyway, I know I didn't misstate my positions or my argument because I've given them so many times. I, 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 knew, I knew what I believed. I knew what I said, whatever. And so I do this long and passionate thing about fascism and in, in, in Europe as we uh, as it existed, whatever. I get interviewed by the by a reporter from the Emory newspaper, and I mean, again, this was like 14 years ago. Uh, and uh, the headline was something along the lines of "Conservative defends the principles of fascism" <laughs> or something like that. It's like this is. This, it's just, like, how dumb do you, I mean, like, I don't want to make fun of, I mean, this person probably has, uh, you know, kids now, but it was just, and I would run into this kind of thing all the time where people just could not grok the argument that I was trying to make. And um, I would obviously trying to make, I made, I mean, I made it book length. I know what my argument was and I, and I know, you know, uh, I articulated it pretty, articulated it pretty well. And, um, but there's just something about the words and the concept that are just so difficult for people to get through their head because they just, they think everything they know about fascism is the truth about fascism. So, uh, again, not a fan of fascism. Fascism was bad. Um, fascism and Nazism are not synonymous terms. There is an argument out there among some people that Nazism wasn't even fascism. Um, 
I don't go that far. I think that you can make, like, you need a word to describe those regimes at that time in world history. And given that uh, fascist Italy and, and Nazi Germany were allied, um, although it was not a natural alliance in many ways, um, um, and it certainly wasn't an entirely ideological alliance, um, uh, you need something to talk about the bad guys in World War II and calling them fascist will suffice even though it messes up a lot of stuff um, in various ways. Because, I mean, again, I don't think the Japanese were necessarily fascist. That was really just, you know, sort of imperialist militarism, um, which is different than fascism. Uh, but, you know, you talk about the Axis powers and the fascists and blah, 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 blah. For shorthand, I think it's fine, right? And And when people say fascist, now the term has come to be descriptive of both Hitler and Mussolini, and you're just going to have to live with that as part of the language. But just to illustrate the point that I'm not, I'm just not asserting things that aren't true, um, uh, or that you know, or making stuff up uh, to fit some sort of ideological frame. Uh, I'll, let me just point out some of the things about fascism that are different. Oh, the reason why I said small pleasures um, fascism is I I was asked by. Uh, uh, Nick Gillespie to do this uh, live YouTube conversation about fascism and national conservatism um, and the Italian elections uh, for Reason Magazine yesterday. And it's been a long time, and I've forgotten a lot about fascism, uh, but it's been a long time since I talked about fascism. And it's actually, for me, it's still a very interesting subject, um, in part because the the way people think they know everything that they need to know about fascism is was so revealed in the last week um, with the elections in Italy um, that it was just sort of fun to go through it all. And so, anyway, so the point I was just about to get to is that uh, you know we tend to think of fascists as this uh, homogenous, unified block, and that if I say you're a fascist, that also means I'm calling you an anti-Semite. Um, and in some cases, if I call you an anti-Semite, people think that means I'm calling you a fascist. Um, we think that fascism and communism are opposites. Um, we think all, you know, we think a lot of these sorts of things, right? So where to begin? Um, so, you know who the first, um, first European leader to send troops to defend a country from a Nazi invasion was? Um, or from Nazi aggression, to be more precise, it was Benito Mussolini. Um, you know, we all remember the Anschluss, and I, I wish we could say all, we all remember. Uh, history buffs remember the Anschluss where, where, where Germany acquired, uh, peacefully annexed Austria, I think it was in 38, someone can correct me on that. Um, this has been a source of great, uh, you know, taking after my, my dad of not letting go of certain historical grievances. Um, uh, this has been one of these things that if you brought up at a cocktail party, I could go on about for quite a while. Um, after the, after World War II, Austria got labeled by the UN or the, I think it was the UN. It might've been one of those post-war conferences prior to the UN. But anyway, it was labeled officially in sort of Cold War foreign policy as the, the Nazis' first victims. Um, which was garbage on all sorts of levels. There were lots of victims before 
uh, Austria. But moreover, when the Nazis, quote unquote, invaded Austria, the Austrians essentially threw the Nazis a parade. But in 32, I think it was 32, um, there was a fairly fascist um, of the more of the Italian stripe than the German stripe. Uh, There's a fascist leader of Austria, Dolphus, I believe his name was. Um, and Germany wanted to uh, browbeat and pressure Austria essentially to sort of force a coup on them. I could be getting the details exactly wrong, um, but uh, um, and it sort of pushed, you know, took a side in essentially what was a simmering civil war in Austria. And Mussolini, who for obvious reasons had a view that, that Italy needed a buffer state between it and Germany, was a champion of Austrian independence and, um, and sent troops uh, to the uh, Italian-Austrian border uh, to signal that, uh, and, and, and insisted that Italy would fight uh, for the defense of an independent Austria against uh, Nazi aggression. Um, it just gives you a sense of like, you know, the, the whole idea that there was a unified foreign policy understanding about how fascism was going to work would, be, would have been news to all of these people back then. And in fact, Dolphus, if memory serves, really didn't like Nazism um, in part because he believed it to be essentially sort of like part of my argument, um, a form of totalitarianism far closer to Stalinism than his brand of sort of neo-fascism or, or Austrian fascism, or whatever. I can't remember what his language was, but um, and you know, all right. So one of the other things that people always say about, uh, you know, fascism, and this is something that it came up a lot. I mean, I, I watched way too much sort of MSNBC and listened to too much NPR in the wake of the Italian elections this week. And, you know, you would hear all this stuff about, um, you know, Maloney is anti-immigrant this and fascists are all anti-immigrant and they don't like immigration and yada, yada, yada. Well, I did a very quick look through, I don't know, five or six biographies of Mussolini and a couple other history books about um, fascism. And look, these are not, these are not Jonah Goldberg-esque books of history. Uh, these are well-accepted major contributions to the historical literature on fascism and, um, or on Mussolini and immigration is just not in the index for almost any of them. The one exception was, uh, Stanley Payne's book, the anatomy of fascism, but he rightly concedes that, uh, you know, immigration was not an issue for, uh, the original fascists. Uh, it was, does become an issue in the 1970s with various neo-fascist groups. And one of the obvious reasons for this is that not a lot of people wanted to immigrate to Italy in the 1920s and 1930s. I don't think people remember how backward or understand how like underdeveloped uh, Italy was in the 20s and 30s. I mean, one of Mussolini's big claims to fame, and it was a good thing, um, was clearing out a whole bunch of malarial swamps that still plagued Italy that had, and had plagued Italy since the Roman days. Um, it was in many respects um, a, uh, third world country. And, um, and there's, and that's an important point because one of the reasons why you get fascism or hyper-nationalism, let's just call it, uh, fascism is a form of hyper-nationalism, but not all nationalisms are fascist, but, 
you know, one of the reasons why you get things like hypernationalism in places like Germany and Italy is Germany and Italy were among the last places in Europe to become countries. Um, and, um, among the last places to industrialize and therefore urbanize. And so when you get really, really rapid urbanization, really, really rapid industrialization, um, lots and lots of young men in particular leave rural communities and go to cities. And you can see how very quickly a sense of nostalgia for an imagined past of sort of pastoral happiness can take over. And then you marry it to this new feeling of, 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 of national solidarity that comes from a starting a new nation. And you can see this sort of reactionary modernism, as I think Jeffrey Herf described the Nazis. You can see this sort of why, why nostalgia and a mythic past become so salient for certain countries. Um, it's in part because they are trying to construct an origin narrative um, that doesn't actually exist in the history books because there was no Germany prior to, oh, you're going to get me in trouble, you know, early 20th century, let's just call it that, you know, when you with the unification of Germany, you have Prussia and you have all these other little principalities. Bismarck does a lot to pull it all together, but you get the point. Same thing with the Risorgimento in Italy. You know, Italy, most people who were of Italian descent did not consider themselves part of an Italian nation until, you know, well into the 19th or 20th century. Um, and that's in part because during the age of empires, Italy belonged to a whole bunch of different kingdoms and, and papacies and, and, and all that kind of stuff. And so when you're in a rush to create a new nation, you create a new mythic past. You get nostalgic for how much better you had it rather than these disease-ridden, cramped conditions in industry-intensive uh, cities that are springing up all over the place. Um, and anyway, but the point is, is that there were the biggest issue for about immigration for Mussolini, um, was his attempt to corral support and resources from, um, Italian, basically the Italian diaspora, particularly Italians in America. So, you know, he did say quite a bit about Italian, about emigration, about Italians leaving Italy. But there were no like there were, not, there were very few North Africans or any of that kind of stuff, you know, racing to live in Italy. And so immigration pro or con just really wasn't a real issue. And also the kinds of immigrants that if you were talking about immigration as a problem or a benefit um, in the first half of the 20th century, never mind in the 19th century, you were talking about other Europeans. And um, you know, the one great exception to this would be Jews. Uh, but you know, the the problem with Jews in Nazi Germany wasn't that they were immigrants in the, in the contemporary sense. It was that they were, um, you know, aliens in our midst for a very long time that we have not successfully purged or gotten rid of, um, which is just a different argument, right? I mean, there have been, there have been attacks. Read uh, Hitler's Willing Executioners by Daniel Jonah Goldhagen. Um, there have been attacks on Jews in Germany for a very long time. Um, even prior to the Reformation. Um, so since we're talking about Jews, uh, there's this, you know, understanding that, that fascism is anti-Semitic. Now, 
I don't think there's anybody who can dispute that Nazism was, was, was quite anti-Semitic. Um, but it's much more complicated with Italy. Jews were overrepresented in the Italian fascist party uh, from its founding until not about 1938. 1938 is a key breaking point for all sorts of things in these conversations. Um, uh, Jews were also overrepresented in anti-fascist parties. It wasn't like, you know, if you were Jewish, you were more likely to be a fascist. It was that if you were Jewish, you were more likely to be political. Um, and, um, and Mussolini denounced Hitler's anti-Semitism, uh, you know, in the, in the early 1930s, I think in 1932, he rejected it as, I think the quote is 100% racism. Um, and one of the reasons why, uh, uh, and some of his, you know, and he was, he was, he had very close friends and, and Jewish mistresses and all this kind of stuff. He wasn't an anti-Semite. Um, but part of it is also that Italy, um, the extent there was anti-Semitism in Italy, and there certainly was, um, it was theological anti-Semitism, um, you know, which is understandable given, you know, the Catholic Church in, in Italy for so long. Um, uh, but biological anti-Semitism, which was really what made um, Nazism so genocidal, um, just a very weird argument for Italians to make because Italians genetically are, and I think this is a, a, a strike in their honor. I don't, this is not a criticism, but it's a pretty mongrel people in the sense that you have, uh, you know, yet Moors invade the South. You have, you know, you have people in the Alpine region or one ethnicity, the people in the middle are a different ethnicity. And I, I mean, in the genetic sense, you've had ports, with traders from around the world and cities that have been cosmopolitan for 5,000 years or something like that. Uh, you know, Etruscans, Greeks, yada, yada, yada. The idea that you're going to talk about biological purity, um, just, it's not going to work really well in a country like Italy. Um, and, uh, um, one of the points I always like to make in, 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 or I should say always, but I used to make all the time, um, is that the Italian fascists, or let me put it this way. Remember I said earlier that Mussolini was the first uh, European leader to um, um, stand up to Nazi aggression uh, in the form of Hitler's attempt or the Nazis' attempt to sort of uh, essentially annex Austria. Um, Mussolini was also the first European leader to send troops into harm's way to save Jewish lives. Um, uh, what, when the Nazis started rounding up Jews from other countries, um, the Italians wanted nothing to do with it. And the Nazis, you know, when the, when the Nazis told the French, send us your Jews, the French send them their Jews. When the Nazis said to the Italians, send us your Jews, the Italians said, no. And they said, okay, well, at least send us the Jews that you've got um, in the places that you're controlling as part of, you know, the, your Axis territories in other parts of Europe. And the Italians said no. And, um, um, and there were all these negotiations where the Italians basically said, um, we're not going to, you know, when, when Hitler started putting the screws to him, you know, uh, uh, the Italians said, okay, well, we're not going to send you any of our Jews or any Jews on any place under work we control. The Nazis were like, okay, we're, we're going to take over some of these areas and you're going to leave us the Jews. And 
the Italians were like, no, but at least let us keep the ones who are related or married into Italian families. And they said, fine. And I think it was in Salonica in Greece, which was under um, uh, Nazi control. The Italians sent one soldier after another to the camp and said, yeah, that guy's uh, my brother. Oh, that, that woman's my wife. Oh, that's my, my aunt. And tried to pull Jews out so they didn't get deported um, to the camps. Um, anyway, a lot of bad things happened under the, the Italian fascists. But like Primo Levi, when he was the Nobel Prize winning uh, Jewish Italian writer, when he was on the run in the Italian Alps after 38, and I'll explain 38 in a second, um, uh, he saw some, uh, some militia came up to him and he was like, don't shoot, don't shoot, I'm a Jew. Because he thought that was a safer thing to say. Um, problem was he said it to the wrong militia. Um, and that's why he ended up going to, getting sent to the camps. But uh, um, Jews in, in throughout Europe, if you were afraid of the Nazis, or you were afraid of the regimes that the Nazis installed in places like Vichy France or Central Europe or whatever, you headed south. You headed south to Italy because you knew it would be safe. The Italians for a long time, prior to 38, when the Germans said, look, you really got to round up your Jews and, and put them uh, and secure them, the Italians said, fine, fine, fine. And they put them up in all of these resorts, uh, you know, under, you know, basically house arrest and fancy hotels, which is not exactly what the Nazis had in mind. Um, um, and the safest place to be by far was Spain. Um, if you could make it there or, and, you know, I mean, I guess America would be safer, but Roosevelt wasn't letting a lot of Jews in, um, much to his shame. Um, but again, just pointing out that there's this, there's not the uniformity and the, the monolithicness to um, fascism that people think. Everyone calls Franco a fascist dictator, yet he wanted nothing to do with World War II and stayed out of it and stayed neutral and, um, and protected Jews. Um, throughout the Holocaust um, in his own country. And he invited Jews to come back and be there. And it doesn't make Franco a good guy either, but it does mean he did a good thing. I, I bring all this up because, and the way I say it's a pleasure is because I actually find a lot of this stuff interesting. And I find a lot of the conversation right now about fascism really, really exhausting in some ways. Um, um, you know, to listen to liberals talk about Maloney um, and Maloney, Malo, Georgia Maloney, the, I don't think she's been sworn in yet, but she just won these elections, the prime minister, going, going to be the next prime minister of Italy. She belonged to some parties that have their roots in, uh, in neo-fascism. Um, that's very bad, but she said a lot of the right things about how fascism is over and in the grave and it's not coming back and she's not interested in it. It would have been nice if she just joined a different party and had a different career. Um, but the lengths to which people are going to try to connect the dots between, between Maloney and what's going on here. Uh, yeah, so you have like Joe Biden saying, you know, what happened in Italy um, is a cautionary tale and a warning about what's at stake here in America. I just think this is so incredibly stupid and ill-advised. I mean, the president of the United States should not be describing the new prime minister of Italy um, 
even obliquely or by association as a new Mussolini until they actually know what she plans on doing and what she does. And it's such an example of the distorting effects of, of domestic partisan politics on all of this. And then you just, all the stuff you hear about, you know, you know, Maloney says this about the family and she says this about, you know, uh, the church. And, and so therefore anybody who talks about family in the church has roots in fascism too, which is of course nonsense. Anyway, so it, I find it all very frustrating. And I find it particularly frustrating in the context of this larger argument that's going on on the right. I wrote uh, just sort of to mildly changed topics here because I feel like I was sort of getting into a ditch. I wrote a G file on Wednesday. We took it out from behind the paywall so that uh, everyone could, could read it and make their own judgments about it. Um, I think it's an important part of, you know, the argument I'm making I think is an important one. Um, I wouldn't have gone at such length and with so few jokes if I didn't think that. Never mind, take it out from behind the paywall if I didn't think that. And I'm not going to reprise the entire thing here, but I, I do want to put it in the context of this fascism stuff. So let me just sort of start with a very basic overview of, of my point. You've all heard me ramble on about American exceptionalism many, many times. I don't need to get back in the weeds and all of it, but the essence of American conservatism was belief in American exceptionalism. Going back to the founding era, we were different. As um, Bill Murray says in Stripes, we're not Watusi, we're not Spartans, we're Americans with a capital A, huh? That means that our forefathers were kicked out of every decent country in the world. American exceptionalism has, you know, on the, on the right took all sorts of forms. You know, you've heard me talk about it as an analytical concept, it goes back to, to Tocqueville. It goes back to the American founding era. Um, it makes a run through uh, German political science. Um, Stalin is actually one of the guys who, like, actually I th is often credited with coining the actual phrase American exceptionalism because he was disagreeing with Jay Lovestone um, about whether or not um, America had the cultural and historical requirements to be uh, open to being uh, a socialist country. Um, so it's got a long history out there on the left and on the right and blah, 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 blah. But the essence for conservatives is that for some people, it's exceptional means we're better. For other conservatives, it just means we're different and we like being different, right? I mean, there's a subtle distinction. One says we're just objectively better because we're just better, right? And the other one says, look, your country is nice for you, Belgium, but I don't want to be a Belgium. I'm an American. Americans like it this way. I'm not saying I'm better than you. I'm saying I like what we are better than what you are. And, um, you know, and this is, think about it this way. This is how a lot of families think about things. It's like, yeah, your family is very nice and you do nice things and that's great. But I like the way my family does things because it's mine. This family is mine. This country is mine. There are many like it, but this one is mine, and I love it for its uniqueness. And uh, this has always been sort of central to not just conservative ideolo ideology, but sort of conservative, um, the sort of conservative orientation towards America. I challenge you to come up with a major foreign policy or domestic policy debate that has any cultural resonance whatsoever that doesn't tap into, to one extent or another, this conservative notion about 
American exceptionalism. You know, I mean, foreign policy is full of them. Uh, you know, the, the sort of anti-Europeanness of the, 19th, of the 18th and 19th century becomes anti-communism. Um, we put under God and the Pledge of Allegiance to sort of signal that we're different than those commies. Um, you know, sometimes, you know, the, the, the right has been ugly and wrong in its, its stuff about this. You know, changing French fries to freedom fries. You know, some of the, the worst excesses of the sort of America love it or leave it stuff are kind of stupid. That's all fine. But, you know, whether it's the fight about socialized medicine, the welfare state, uh, isolationism, you can go down a very long list and it's very difficult to come up with an argument where part of the conservative orientation towards the argument was, look, America's just different. We do things differently here. Um, the American way uh, is a thing and we shouldn't turn our backs from it just because we think, you know, Europeans are so much more clever and so much more sophisticated than us. And meanwhile, the history of the left in America is very much the history of trying to Europeanize America. Um, and I do, I can give you quotes, chapter and verse. I put a bunch in the G file, but this is just this is just, I would argue, is just a factual observation. It is not a particularly polemical argument. There are things about Europe that are very admirable, and it's and there's something about the left that is more cosmopolitan, that is more, uh, you know, uh, open to the idea of importing foreign ideas and and all of that. Um, but it's just the lay of the land. In the last few years, though. Um, the way the right talks about American exceptionalism is heartbreaking to me. And I don't mean all of the right, obviously. Lots of my conservative friends don't talk this way. Lots of my colleagues at National Review don't talk this way. Nobody, as far as I'm aware, at AEI talks this way. Um, moreover, a lot of the politicians who talk this way do it because uh, their goober 25-year-old speechwriters tell them that's how you're supposed to talk, but they don't actually believe it. But I'm talking about how these ideas are sort of bubbling up, the very sort of Tucker Carlson, uh, Turning Point USA, Heritage Foundation stuff um, has become so populist and so anti-left, for want of a better term, um, that it is abandoning certain sort of bedrock strictures of the... Um, of American conservatism, and, and really in some ways, I would argue American patriotism. The immediate response to Maloney's election in Italy, the mere fact that the left was freaking out about it, made a lot of people on the right say, oh my gosh, she's one of us, she's our ally. You have you know, these junkets to friggin' Hungary um, it seems like every 20 minutes, some other right winger is going on a, you know, a, a vacation conference junket trip to Hungary and coming back like Lincoln Steffen saying, I've been to the past and it works. Um, you have all these people who seem to think that Hungary is this model for social organization in the United States, the same way the left used to talk about Sweden or Cuba or remember there's a little while there where <laughs> everybody on the left was talking about how, how Venezuela was a model for the, for the United States. You know, I mean, it's a lot of stupid out there, but 
one of the things that set me off was this tweet by um, the president of the Heritage Foundation who says, um, it's in the G file, I don't have it in front of me, but you know, basically says, uh, on the eve of, of, of Maloney's election, says, if the exit polls are right, uh, Maloney looks like she'll win, and, this is a le- and we just won a victory in Sweden. Um, this is a lesson for, you know, for us, if you run a, as you know, elites versus, if you run against the elites and you make it an us versus them with us being the everyday people, um, we'll win and yada, yada, yada. Now, I'm just going to assert, I don't think Kevin Roberts knows very much about what Italian politics are about or Swedish politics are about. Maybe he does. And certainly it's possible that he talked to somebody on his staff to tell him something intelligent about these things. That's fine. Um, and for all I know, I mean, people tell me Kevin Roberts is a nice guy. I'm not, there's not, no personal animosity here. I'm just judging his public statements on face value. But, you know, Roberts, who seems very concerned about being on cable news rather than putting out scholarly work, this idea that somehow there's this popular front between American conservatives and Italian right-wingers and Swedish right-wingers, um, I think that needs, I'll be as charitable as I can be, that needs to be fleshed out a bit more. And if you look at, you know, the, the, you know, the history of the Heritage Foundation, they used to, and I know this because I used to be invited to talk about this stuff by heritage people. They used to talk a lot about American exceptionalism. They used to talk a lot about the European disease and how we don't want to be like Europe and that we can't look to Europe for our model because we want to go a different way. If you type in American exceptionalism in the Heritage Foundation search engine, which I did, um, a lot of stuff comes up, including from stuff for some really smart, wonderful scholars who have uh, left Heritage in the last few years, I think in part because they actually still believed that stuff and Heritage has gone nationalist. And when I say Heritage has gone nationalist, again, I'm just following what Roberts himself has said. He went to the nationalist conservative conference thing and said, you know, I'm not here to tell you you should join our movement. I'm here to tell you that Heritage has already joined yours. That is just a huge departure from the dogma and the doctrine that heritage used to believe in. And one of the reasons that I wrote the G file the way I did was that, you know, I get told every five minutes by serious people and by really stupid, unserious people that I've changed. I've left conservatism. Um, I'm no longer relevant because I'm no longer conservative and yada, yada, yada. And they all make it sound like I've gone through some vast metamorphosis ideologically when if you just actually judge institutions and individuals by what they say today versus what they said five years ago, I really haven't changed very much at all. And these institutions have changed profoundly. And I find so much of their reaction to this point to be incredibly juvenile. Rob Bluey, who's the communications guy, VP at Heritage, his only response to you know what I wrote was some, oh, the dispatch people really have are. Are, are really have a problem with heritage lately, I take that as a sign that we're doing something right. This sort of thing about how if I criticize you, that means that you must have a point. Rob's a good guy. He's a smart guy. He's better than that. And I have some sympathy because his, the whole point of heritage's organizational model is that no one's allowed to dissent from anything there publicly. They have to speak. They call it a one-voice policy, and they're proud of it. I think they shouldn't be. Um, 
I think it's a really terrible policy for a think tank. Not a bad policy necessarily for a political action committee or something, but a terrible policy for a think tank. Um, I would actually argue it's an indefensible one, but it is what it is. And there've been lots of people who worked at Heritage, good people who worked at Heritage, and there still are. But um, the idea that I have to, I have to either remain silent or say things I don't believe to be part of the team is just completely contrary to the spirit of open intellectual inquiry. And if, if a think tank is going to have something to do with open intellectual inquiry, it shouldn't have a one voice policy, but it does. And so, you know, what else is Rob going to say? You know, um, and I get it, but I, I, I invited him to come on the remnant and um, happy to have this conversation. I would be civil. Again, I like the guy. I've known him, I've known him casually. I wouldn't say we're friends, but you know, we've been acquaintances for a long time. Um, happy to have him on and discuss all of this stuff. But um, the simple fact is, is that Heritage is going with this populist nationalist stuff. And this populist nationalist stuff was not considered to be conservative by the Heritage Foundation just a few years ago, never mind, you know, 20 years ago. And when it's an important point to keep in mind because conservatives love to talk about how there are immutable truths, unchanging truths that we can't just give in with the times and hold our fingers to the wind and, you know, the whole, you know, uh, situational ethics and moral subjectivity and all of these kinds of things, um, or moral relativism, these are all bad. Well, on a lot of issues that the Heritage Foundation used to invest with a high degree of moral principle, they've just changed their views and they've become populist nationalists. Um, and it's influencing their foreign policy positions, which is why a lot of people who opposed, uh, who supported, uh, um, who opposed the Heritage Foundation's position on Ukraine and supported America's position on Ukraine um, have left. Um, and and I don't mean to signal out heritage, but like, you know, heritage matters, you know, by, you know, if you, <laughs> they're ranked, I think is the most influential think tank in the world, um, which makes all of this, you know, everyday people versus the elite stuff, you know, pretty bullshitty um, and silly, but uh, you know, it keeps the lights on, but this kind of thing is going on across all sorts of swaths of the right, of the right these days where they're changing their orientation in all sorts of ways. And um, this guy, Dave Marcus, uh, you know, ridiculed me on Twitter about uh, my piece, you know, because I pointed out that, you know, uh, the American Conservative Union, which runs CPAC, uh, Heritage Foundation, um, of course, uh, you know, National Review, um, they all sort of uh, excommunicated Pat Buchanan when he became a nationalist conservative. Um, I think it was. Ed Fulner himself, no, it's David Keene, who used to run ACU and CPAC. Um, David Keene, you know, said in 1996 that Pat Buchanan is, is, is not an American conservative. He's more like a European conservative. Um, and that was true because a European conservative um, is really, you know, you can say they're a right winger, but they're not trying to conserve the American political tradition and American political ideas. and the ideas of the founding. You know, this is the point Sam Huntington makes in conservatism as an ideology, which he wrote, I don't know, I want to say 56, something like that. 
I talk about it on here quite a bit, um, particularly whenever Continetti comes on. Um, you know, he points out that a conservative in Portugal, you know, back then might want to conserve the monarchy or whatever military junta was running Portugal in the 50s. A conservative in the Soviet Union, this used to drive my dad crazy. You know, the media would always talk about the conservatives in the Politburo. And the conservatives in the Politburo were the most ardent and doctrinaire Marxist-Leninists. But in a sense, you know, that was right, because what they were trying to conserve in uh, the Soviet Union was the Bolshevik Revolution, not the American Revolution. And this was a distinction that everybody, you know, once understood. You know, I actually called it up here. um, I guess I actually put it in the comments for something else the other day, and so I just have the document open. this is from the opening of Friedrich Hayek's uh, Why I'm Not a Conservative. And, um, and you know, this essay, um, which was originally a lecture, um, was a broadside against American conservatives who wanted to basically be um, uh, part of a European conservative orientation rather than what was going on in America. But anyway, that's... That's a backstory that I actually didn't know um, until I read Continenti's book, which I, I highly recommend. But anyway, this is, the, this is from the, the essay. I think it's the first paragraph. Hayek writes, Conservatism proper is a legitimate, probably necessary, and certainly widespread attitude of opposition to drastic change. It has, since the French Revolution, for a century and a half, played an important role in European politics. Until the rise of socialism, Its opposite was liberalism. There is nothing corresponding to this conflict in the history of the United States because what in Europe was called liberalism was here the common tradition on which the American polity had been built. Thus, the defender of the American tradition was a liberal in the European sense. Right? Conservatives here were trying to conserve the principles of the founding. And the founding was a radical rejection of European conservatism, the conservatism of throne and altar, the right-wingness of blood and soil. We got rid of titles of nobility here at the founding, right? Um, This was a, 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 a new politics, a new science of politics. And um, just one last thing, because I also have this called up, um, and I promise I'll then move on from some of this. But uh, uh, this is from liberal fascism, right? So I wrote this, which, you know, at least for a while, made me something of a star on the right as a conservative. And um, for, so for the people who say I've changed and they haven't, I just want to read these two paragraphs. For more than 60 years, liberals have insisted that the bacillus of fascism lies semi-dormant in the bloodstream of the political right. And yet, with the notable and complicated exceptions of Leo Strauss and Alan Bloom, no top-tier American conservative intellectual was a devotee of Nietzsche or a serious admirer of Heidegger. All major conservative schools of thought trace themselves back to the champions of the Enlightenment. John Locke, Adam Smith, Montesquieu, Burke, and none of them have any direct intellectual link to Nazism or Nietzsche, to existentialism, nihilism, or even, for the most part, pragmatism. Meanwhile, the ranks of left-wing intellectuals are infested with ideas and thinkers 
squarely in the fascist tradition. And yet all it takes is the abracadabra word Marxist to absolve most of them of any affinity with these currents. The rest get off the hook merely by attacking bourgeois morality and American values, even though such attacks are themselves little better than a reprise of fascist arguments. What many conservatives, including Bush and Buchanan, and I had had this complaint about Bush stuff, which is not relevant for now, but just letting you know, what many conservatives, including Bush and Buchanan, failed to grasp is that conservatism is neither identity politics for Christians and or white people, nor right-wing progressivism. Rather, it is opposition to all forms of political religion. It is a rejection of the idea that politics can be redemptive. It is the conviction that a properly ordered republic has a government of limited ambition. A conservative in Portugal may want to conserve the monarchy. A conservative in China is determined to preserve the prerogatives of the Communist Party. But in America, as Friedrich Hayek and others have noticed, have noted, a conservative is one who protects and defends what are considered liberal institutions in Europe, but largely conservative ones in America. Private property, free markets, individual liberty, freedom of conscience, and the right of communities to determine for themselves how they will live within these guidelines. This is why conservatism, classical liberalism, libertarianism, and Whiggism are different flags for the only truly radical political revolution in a thousand years. The American founding starts within this tradition, and modern conservatives seek to advance and defend it. American conservatives are opposed on principle to neither change nor progress. No conservative today wishes to restore slavery or get rid of paper money. But what the, other, what, but what the conservative understands is that progress comes from working out inconsistencies within our tradition, not by throwing it away. I don't have it in front of me. I go on to point out that conservatism, American conservatism is more than just simply classical liberalism, but an American conservatism that doesn't try to conserve classical liberalism isn't worth it. It's, itself isn't worth conserving. And so this is the guy I've been all along. And I know um, I'm not that important, but this is my podcast. <laughs> and I feel like if I'm not allowed to sort of defend myself and my worldview here, it's not like anyone else is going to do it for me. Believe me, I've been waiting for people to come to my defense who have not for a long time now, and I've, I've given up on that. And so I just think it's worth pointing out how much the conservatism that we're talking about, which, you know, name checks left-wing philosophers and wants to create this sort of, you know, popular front, this globalist popular front, uh, is so different from the conservatism I grew up with and that I studied for so long. And so when people tell me, you know, you know, this is, and, oh, so they say David Marcus, he says, says to me, took exception to the stuff about Buchanan, and he says, you know, I keep, we keep telling you, and I don't know who the we is, and I don't know why him telling me something somehow is dispositive of anything. But he says, you know, we keep telling you that um, this is the fight Republicans want you know, this is the conservatism that they want. And I'm not entirely sure that that's true. I think the Republican Party and the conservatives who are most passionate about this stuff um, are captured by a small, very vociferous base 
of a much larger group of people who don't want this stuff, but whatever, that's an analytical question. It does nothing to rebut my points at all. You know, the fact that some of this crap is popular does not rebut my charge that it's a betrayal of what conservatives once said they believe. The fact, again, I'm not claiming, and I don't, I don't think it's as popular as they claim, but it's just sort of stipulated. The fact that it's popular doesn't mean it's right. Doesn't mean it's good or laudable. Um, doesn't mean that I should somehow get, a lo- get on board the train, right? I mean, like, you know, what kind of idiotic argument says, you don't understand this stuff is popular, therefore you have to believe it now. Like, this is my whole gripe against what's happened to so many people on the right, is they think that, that they have to say the stuff that they think, again, I'm not sure they're right, that they think their people want to hear, that their audience, that their market, that their voters want to hear. And, 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 if, and if you believe it and you want to say that stuff, that's fine. But if you believe it only because it's popular and if, 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 people, believed, if people wanted something else, you'd believe that too, you know, um, I have no respect for that. And I just, that's not the, and it's certainly not the way, I mean, like it's one that people making that complaint about politicians for a thousand years, but um, actually 5,000 years, but that's not what writers or intellectuals or, you know, people who don't have to put themselves up for office should believe. It's not, I, personally, I don't think it's what people with integrity should believe. You should not, like, if, if, if there's something that you disagree with that is popular, the popularity of it might induce you to find out why it's so popular and listen to people about why it's popular. And maybe someone will make an argument to convince you to agree with it, but skipping that step and just agreeing with something because it's popular is, I think it's just a betrayal to your integrity. It's a betrayal to your conscience. It's a betrayal to your principles. It's certainly not what think tanks should be doing. Um, and I, frankly, I don't think it's what politicians should be doing. I'm on team Burke on this, you know, politicians owe their voters, their judgment, not their blind fealty. All right. I admit that was probably more than anybody was looking for on this stuff. So, um, I'll stop. If you have questions, let me know. But, um, I sort of got this in my head yesterday because I, I did that reason thing about fascism and. Um, it's been so long since I talked about this stuff that I just kind of wanted to keep going. So I apologize to people who are like, whoa, that was a bit much. Other things going on. Um, well, we're kind of wrapping up on time here, but um, on the punditry side, I have no idea what I'm going to write about in the G file today, but I would rather it not be some um, eggheady thing. So I got to figure out something about normal politics. And, um, I really enjoyed, I know it's so funny. I knew this would happen. Um, the reaction to the rat episode has been so diverse. Um, I haven't done a poll. I don't know if it, if it's a 50, 50 thing or a 90, 10 thing, but, uh, a bunch of people really enjoyed it and liked it. And a bunch of people, again, I don't know if if in equal proportion, we're like, yeah, I couldn't even sit through that thing. You know, who cares about rats? I like that stuff and I'd like to do more of it. I think it's interesting. I think, you know, one of the points that he made, uh, 
that I had never really thought of, um, which I actually think is like really, really interesting is, so in case you hadn't listened to that podcast, something like this guy, Michael Parsons, who's a rat guy, studies wild rats. He said uh, that if you're like a program officer for some foundation that gives money to public health programs, and you get the idea in your head that, uh, you know, maybe we should fund some rat research. You go to a Google Scholar or some other academic database and you type in rat study and you get, you know, hundreds of millions of results about rat studies. And you're like, oh, so this is pretty well studied. And, you know, his point was that, no, actually, all of those studies are basically studies about humans and they're using genetically modified or genetically, you know, interbred lab rats as essentially um, a stand-in for humans. There's not a lot of learning about rats going on, certainly not rat behavior. It's, um, it's a way to sort of do medical research for humans on rats. And so there's actually very little that's been actually, but like if you saw that, you're like, oh, we don't need to, we don't need to fund any studies on rats because look at all these rat studies, but they're not rat studies. And there are actually very, very, very few studies about wild rats and it's such a weird phrase to use wild rats because the wild rats are urban rats yeah there are rural wild rats too um but um and that's why i want to i'm sorry people anti-rat people but i want to get another rat guy on here because i have a lot more questions about rats and their natural habitat whatever that is um and and rat genetics and whatnot um I do think it's kind of outrageous that I haven't done more dog genetics stuff on here because I'm even more interested in dog genetics, but such as it is. Anyway, I think there's a really important public policy point to be made insofar as rats cost humanity, or to say Americans, billions of dollars every year. I don't know how many billions and, and neither is anybody else because there aren't good studies, but if it's true, as Parsons suggested, that between 10 and 20% of urban fires are somehow caused or at least related to rats, that's a big line item right there alone, right? And because rats, they like to nest near electrical transformers, they chew up wires. Um, so even if they may not be like sitting there with a book of matches, um, lighting toilet paper on fire in the stairwell, um, their actions lead to fires. That's, you know, a big line item. The, we didn't get too deep in the details because I could tell how disgusting it might be, but I did a bunch of reading about this. Like, if you, and I'll try to keep it non-disgusting, but sewer rats live in sewers. There's a lot of stuff in sewers that's icky. And they eat a lot of stuff in sewers. Rats also eat lots of fecal stuff. And diseases just normally get passed along through there. But then you also have, you know, in these animals that are unvaccinated for anything, in their lungs, in their, in their guts, uh, these diseases meet other diseases and they thrive inside of these rats and maybe they mutate. There are real black swan risks about various diseases, particularly in the age of antibiotic resistance, where we are pumping so many antibiotics literally into the wastewater. And also things like, you know, estrogen from birth control pills. Who knows what the little petri dishes inside, you know, these furry petri dishes might 
gestate inside of them. And we have very little insight into any of that, um, in part because most of the rats that we see are outlier rats. They're traveling rats. They're, they're the lone wolves of rats. Um, they're heading out to either set up new colonies or heading out alone because they're kicked out of the existing colonies. And the main colonies live underneath vast amounts of concrete and steel, so you can't really do GPS tracking. You can't really get drones and cameras in there, particularly if it's not well-funded. And so we really don't have a great grasp of how many rats there are and what's going on with them and how to deal with them. And all because, like, I would assume that most, you know, uh, public, you know, like Bill Gates types, if you could explain to him the scope of rat problems, and look, remember, rats also consume like 10 or 20% of agricultural products, either in warehouses or in the, in the field. That's more in third world stuff in the United States, but there's plenty of it in the United States too. Um, it's a major cost, you know? Um, um, and I bet you someone like Bill Gates would be like, that's, a, that's something we should study more. But you get what you... You know, you get what you measure, and because we've misled people into thinking that we've measured, you know, we've studied rats a lot, um, we don't fund that stuff. I'm also just like, oh, and so another thing, a bunch of people in the comments were laughing at, in a friendly way for the most part, my question about, so like, every time you read anything about rats and how rat populations can rebound very quickly, like you literally need to kill, say you have a population of, 10,000 rats in some area, you have to kill like 9,980 of them to really make anything like a medium-term dent in rat density. And even then, and this is the point, uh, lots of people, like Parsons, will point out that if you take two rats and you uh, let them breed and then all of their offspring breed at the same rate and then those offspring breed at the same rate, you will get back to that 10,000 population number, like in six months or something like that, or five months, um, because they can breed so prodigiously and rats breed up until the diminishing returns of a food resource. And so this is why he argues that you have to diminish, you have to cut off weight, food waste if you want to cut off rat populations, because rat populations can actually control their birth rate to correspond to the amount of available food. And I asked the question about, and I was, it was a sincere question. I hate to say it because people think it was just a joke. And I guess it's funnier as a joke than, and more stupid as a real question. But I had a point to it as I asked, you know, this two rats to 15,000 rats in six months number or formula, is that about sense? Is that about incest? And Parsons made it clear that he'd never thought of that. That wasn't the point. It was purely a mathematical model. It assumes that each new rat born finds its one true soulmate and then they have non-incestuous relations and have more rats. And the reason why I wanted to ask that incest question, because look, first of all, if rats, which I did know, um, eat each other when necessary, um, the idea that they might hold off on some taboo forms of love, um, struck me as implausible. So I assume there is a certain amount of rat incest going on out there anyway. And the reason why that's interesting to me, it's not like I really, um, um, you know, am turned on by rat incest, 
but why I think it's interesting is, is like if you're doing actual breeding, um, the way you can evolve, you know, not necessarily new species, but sort of new variants of species or new subspecies is through a lot of inbreeding because you can therefore breed into, a, you know, you can, you can develop and express a certain trait more quickly and more effectively. And that's why like dog breeding um, involves a certain amount of that in the past is, is you're breeding for those traits. Um, and one of the reason why I ask that is I'm really interested in this con in, 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 in evolution that is happening now. Um, are we seeing, you know, we know that bir certain birds are changing their behaviors um, because of urban light. Uh, they're changing their songs because of urban noise. Um, and I'm just really curious about, and that's why I want to get a rat genetics guy on. Are we going to have, you know, new, some new, or, you know, uh, you know, urban uh, rat that is genetically different in significant ways to the point where it's a different species from rural rats. Um, you know, I mean, I just think it's sort of, you know, like it takes city mouse, country mouse stuff to a whole new level. And I think that stuff is like really interesting. Uh, gosh, I guess I'm kind of done. I apologize if this was a weird one. Um, we sent out an invitation. I'm going to try and write another one today. Um, for our Naples event, I know it's expensive. I know many of you can't afford it. Um, totally understand that. Um, you know, this is, there's a complicated backstory about how we're sort of, you know, leading with this thing. Although we've done a few meetups, you know, and we're going to do more. Um, I've committed to coming out to Portland, Oregon at some point soonish uh, for a dispatch meetup. Um, and we had one in Tennessee recently and the AO team has gone to a bunch of different places and we had a 500th episode of the remnant meetup here in DC. So it'll be more of that, much more affordable and all that. But, you know, for complicated reasons, we were committed to doing this post-election big conference. We wanted it to be a big thing. It's expensive. I don't know that we're going to make a profit on it. I'm pretty sure that we're not. That's fine. We think it was important to do. Um, and, uh, you know, if you come to the Naples event, we can tell you more about the genesis of it. Cause that's kind of funny or interesting. Um, but if you can come, we'd love to see you. We'll put a link to, you know, the info in the show notes. It's going to be a bunch of inter interesting people. There's plenty of time to, um, hang out and have a drink or in some cases, maybe even smoke a cigar. Um, with various of us. And, um, I'm not a big golfer. In fact, I would argue I'm the world's worst two armed and two legged golfer. Um, but we're going to have a, a pretty nice golf place. This is all assuming that the Naples, uh, Ritz Carlton golf resort, uh, where this is going to be going to be is still there because uh, hurricane Ian caused a mess in a lot of places down there. And I should have said at the outset, you know, my heart goes out to everybody down there. Florida is going to have a tough road back. But anyway, if you could come, that would be great. If you could become a dispatch member, our membership, you know, our, uh, we're not supposed to call them subscribers. Our membership numbers um, have really taken off in the last month because of um, Nick Cataggio, a.k.a. Alapundit, and Kevin Williamson joining ranks. And um, we got more exciting stuff to come. Uh, 
this is still, I really believe if it's not the ground floor, then it's just the first floor of what we're trying to build here. And um, everything we do depends on, you know, you know, trust me, podcast advertising is not what keeps the lights on. Um, what keeps the lights on are our subscriptions. And, um, and that means if you like this podcast or you like what we're trying to do, we're not asking for donations. We're not asking for charity. Um, we're just asking that you as a consumer of news and information, uh, I'd say vote with your feet, but you don't have to get off, you know, your chair, just vote with your mouse as it were, and click on a yearly subscription to the, to the dispatch. Um, and if you can come on down to Naples, cause I think it's going to be a lot of fun and interesting and there'll be a lot of uh, fun and interesting people there. So with that, thank you all for indulging me this morning and, um, I'll see you next time. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, avoid, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.